Episode 8, Elise Poppers. My name is Michael Delgado and I'm your host. You're listening to A.G. Geiger Presents Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. And I come to you each week from the fantastic library bar in the spectacular historic Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown L.A. Today I'm meeting actor, artist, and author Elise Poppers. She's here to promote her new work, The Little Love Book, 267 Words for Love in Sanskrit. Poppers, however, is better known as a collaborator with the notorious performance artist Paul McCarthy, starring in several of his films, films that make the word provocative blush. Elise is waiting for me in the cozy library bar. Tucked into the corner of a couch, she's nearly swallowed in the cushions, but she jumps up to greet me. She is delicate, perfectly proportioned, a pocket Venus. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My guest today is Elise Poppers, a fascinating personality that has recently become the toast of the international art scene for her collaborative work with Paul McCarthy, performing as Natalie Wood in his pieces Rebel and Rebel Dabble Babble, performing as White Snow in WS, and playing the central role in the performance and installation series That Girl, in which her body was painstakingly replicated in silicone into a terrifyingly lifelike simile. Her work has also been profiled in Vogue and the New York Times. Okay, so here we go. So, welcome, Edith. Pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have you, really. And I was curious, I mean, you were saying you had not been to the hotel before. Correct. It's nice. It's very nice. <laughs> the table is exquisite. <laughs> It's, it's stingray it's a skin. It's swanky, swanky podcast room, I gotta say. I the, agree. Yeah. I'm impressed. Well, cool. Well, um, you've been described uh, in the media like the, oh, well, you know, the New York Times and the arts media uh, as Paul McCarthy's muse. Um, but looking at the level of your contribution as a performer, you know, not to mention the harrowing self-sacrifice required in making the, the, the silicone reproductions of you. I think that description is incomplete and, and not a good way to describe you at all. Um, term used, you know, not unfair, but it, I think it clips uh, a lot of your input in the, in the work. And, um, and I don't think the work would be anywhere near where they ended up without um, without you and I and so I see you as more of a collaborator I would consider myself a, a collaborator but I would also consider anyone who's identified as a muse as a collaborator so for me it's not so much a problem with the term muse but with the definition and wanting to expand that understanding to include that a, that a muse would be an essential part of the process of, of a work of art. It's not a hermetic box that 
right. somebody stands in and then well, the muse art is just kind happens. of a, a romantic notion anyway, right? And then it's always referred to as a female, pretty much, right? And right. So, but your on your end, instead for the work that you were involved with, um, was quite more involved, yeah. More involved than than I would say uh, the traditional romantic definition of muse. Sure, like some sort of fantasy fiction of that, for sure. I, uh, Paul and I worked very closely together on all of our projects and spent a lot of time planning and writing and experimenting. So, uh, and yeah. this collaboration has, a, has spanned how many years now? Uh, I would say in total about four years. And the first was Rebel, Rebel, I think? Uh, first was Rebel, oh, right. and then Rebel Dabble Babble, uh, then White Snow, or I'm sorry, That Girl, and then White Snow. And uh, after White Snow, I, uh, I started doing my own independent work, yeah. performance work. So for the last two years, I've been working independently. Really? Because I was going to ask you that. Or I am going to ask you that. Yeah. Ask you now. When we see the work, um, the films, which are not commercial in any real traditional sense, and I think that you starred in the films, um, you know, a term that carries all the Hollywood references, which are, um, of course, integral to the overall McCarthy MO. Um, I'm wondering if you're able or willing to return to you know um, commercial filmmaking, right? I I feel open to all of those possibilities. My work for the last two years has been primarily art performance, and not any sort of commercial acting. I did previously. That's how Paul and I actually connected. Was I auditioned for him, not realizing that it was a Paul McCarthy piece? <laughs> right. I actually I I was in an acting class. I moved to LA to study acting. And I was in a class where we were choosing kind of characters and uh, actors that we wanted to work with. And Natalie Wood was who I had been working on okay. a lot of her pieces. And, and so what was that? I, I loved Just her work. Yeah. I love her so much. Yeah, she's so special and so authentic and raw in so many ways. Kind of, I feel like, mm -hmm. before her time, right, in yeah. a sense. So and Is this yeah. an acting class that gave you that? like as a workshop kind of thing to do? It was an ongoing acting class. We went every week and did scene study. So mm -hmm. I was encouraged to essentially find a body of work that I wanted to work on uh -huh. and then bring it into class every week. And my teacher did mention Natalie Wood to me, I think because of a resemblance and age and, and all of that, of some of her more um, well-known work. So um, I was working on that and a friend actually um, had seen in the breakdowns an audition for a, a new version of Rebel Without a Cause. And so at the time I didn't have an agent, but I found out the name of the casting director and I went and knocked on her door and asked if I could audition. And uh, I ended up coming in. The rest is history. The rest is history, yeah. <laughs> I realized when I walked in and saw Paul sitting there and having studied art history, I realized it was not going to be a traditional audition. Right. right. And that was sort of the moment. So that you didn't have you read and 
He did, yeah. I had, yeah, I had sides, and uh, I read for some scenes from Rebel Without a Cause, and came back for a callback, and another callback, which became increasingly abstract, and yeah. nothing like any other audition, and I realized that was really what I wanted to be doing. The, right. the reason I was there acting was to get into this sort of world and have that kind of freedom and creativity as an actress. Yeah. So I could see that would be useful in a commercial context. Absolutely, yeah. Well, there's, there's usually some opportunities for improvisation and... It, it, I would say, just as a as an artist, doing Im- improvisational work and experimental work just frees up your whole instrument and being, just to be more receptive and see more possibilities and be more creative. But the truth is, after I I I, I did very little commercial acting after that. Basically, Paul and I were off and running and spent the next four years doing not much more than working together. So. Do you have something in the works now then, or can, that you can talk about or not? No, not not at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm just pursuing my independent projects right now. Yeah. Well, Paul's a busy guy and he's, he's quite the factory. He's a super nice guy too. He's, he's, uh, he's one of my picks for deserted island artists. You know, if you could pick, you know, just three artists to be stranded with. Yeah, it's a really good choice for a desert island artist. I, would, I totally agree with you. But you moved down from San Francisco for acting. Um, did you train up there for that? I, I did study acting at ACT in San Francisco, but previously I had gotten a bachelor's degree in journalism and um, international politics, and uh, I studied art history so as well. Of course, you were straight to acting. Naturally, yeah. I was I was working in San Francisco as a private investigator, and yeah, I want to ask about yeah. Okay. And you have these other talents. There's this whole other thing about art fraud investigation. (laughs) (laughs) What is even happening? (laughs) Straight line to art fraud. Sure. Yeah. I um I grew up. Um, in a family of art appraisers, ah. and uh, like as I said, I studied journalism and politics. I ended up looking for a job in journalism after graduating, and I also had this background in art history, and I ended up meeting a private investigator who was the head of the firm in San Francisco, and they were looking for an art fraud and art theft investigator, and it just lined up that I had the exact credentials right. for it, which is really strange that and random. Really, that is crazy, but yeah. Um, so how close is it to the Renee Rousseau character in Thomas? It's Trump? identical. The I only thing different know. are the shoes. <laughs> I don't get to wear stiletto heels and run, but other than that, identical. <laughs> and we meet all sorts of very rich, interesting characters That's who have stolen things. Always, yeah. yes. Every case. Every single case, yes, <laughs> yeah. So uh, what exact, how does this happen? So what, I mean, like, take me through a typical investigation. Well, what... Like, how does, yeah. are, they, what are, they, are they stolen? Are they just 
They are, they're mostly fraud, a, a reported stolen work of art generally is what I found to be an inside job and some form of insurance fraud. So the problem with being an art investigator is you go to investigate the art from the people that it was stolen from and they don't want to give you information because they're actually they're trying, trying to collect <laughs> insurance money. <laughs> so I had this very high-minded so ideal know, about so it. They know that it's a fraud and they're like, yeah. oh, I don't know what happened. Like, because it never really exists. Like, and where are the trying. records? Like, where is this? Like, oh, I don't else. know. You know, it was, um, yeah, it was a bit frustrating. So you would go to someone's mansion and they would say, oh, my Picasso is stolen. Actually, it was generally a gallery. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yeah, generally. And galleries get such a bad rap. They and do. Sometimes for a reason. They do. Yeah. And, was, and they would allege theft? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was desperate times. It was near sure. the economic crash of 20 right. or 2008. And so I think there was a lot of desperate financial situations going on. So it was really, it was a tough moment. And I ended up basically having to just roll that work into general private investigation work. Oh, and really? I still, you know, help, help people out with art-related cases if they need help, but yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot and um, I always loved just being close to the art world and to art, so mm -hmm. it was it was a step in the direction of actually making work mm -hmm. myself, I would say, and getting a lot of, of views of the sort of backroom workings of the art world, for sure, which I think is helpful. Sure. And sometimes you don't want to lift that curtain. So, how long have you been in L.A.? I've been in L.A. seven years. I think so. Oh, eight years. Thanks. I was born here, so I returned. Well, Thank you. <laughs> and you went up there for school? I went to UC Santa Cruz, so I went up and then You're stayed. I am a fighting banana set. You left out mighty fighting. Mighty is most important. <laughs> yes, they're very, they're victorious. <laughs> the bananas look. Oh, it's just beautiful up there. It's so nice. Yeah. Ugh, yeah, it's heaven. And you go back a lot, yeah? I do. I spend half of my time in Mendocino County, so north of there. Oh, a ways, yeah. It's pretty get a break well that's more than I mean well half is is more than a break yeah yeah that's true so what's up there what do you do so my husband lives there um, and is from there and so we have a little bit of land in the Anderson Valley which is wine and yeah, beautiful. beautiful redwood trees um, so I have a lot more space up there to make work mm -hmm. um, and yeah, just sort of incubate. I would say when I'm in LA, it's more active right. and engaged. Mm -hmm. And I love being in LA too. I love, I love being in both places. Well, well, that sounds like the best of both worlds. Um, so let's talk about your book, the Little Love Book, 267 words for love in Sanskrit. Yeah. 
Um, it's a project I started as a conceptual work, essentially wondering about love and why language was so insufficient to be able to describe something so massive and right. um, that's such a part of all our lives. Why it spawned, that whole impulse has spawned quite a lot of wonderful work. So maybe it was <laughs> never really meant to be. Sure, like <laughs> like a question that's not meant to be answered in a way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what's ironic is that even with 267 words, it does not cover all of the possibilities and colors and flavors. So how did you love. go about trying to discover which language had the most descriptions for it, or was that even the way you started? I, ju- I just I thought, okay, in English, ha- do we have other words for love? And I, I realized, no, I, I really don't think that we do. Okay, well, other languages maybe have more words. You know, English only, I think, are spoken... Well, adore, right? Adore. It's not the same. Not quite the same. Adore is the closest, I agree. Uh-huh. Maybe we have love and adore. And in Greek, there's five. Uh, and I knew that, and I thought, well, maybe there's a language with more, and, and I started Googling and found a reference online that said there were 97 words for love in Sanskrit. Mm. I thought, that's interesting. I knew that Sanskrit mm. was the mother language of English, right. so we have, yeah, we have a strong association, and I thought, well, that's interesting. It's and probably the British that clipped them all away. Yeah, it's definitely the British. <laughs> or the Germans. I, <laughs> It's the whole Indo-European language family that starts with Sanskrit, so it could have been any of them, yeah, frankly. Yeah, started pruning. Yeah. Well, the word, the word for lo- love, the word love in English, comes from the Sanskrit lobha, which actually means to perplex or confuse and also to love. It's appropriate. Yeah. I think so. That might, that's telling. Um, so anyway, I tried to find this list of all the all the words for love in Sanskrit or deceive. Or deceive. That's that's a different word, but <laughs> it's in there. It's in the book. Um, anyway, so I, I I realized I had to create the list myself, and I started just scouring the the main Sanskrit English dictionary, Monier Williams, which is from the 19th century and spent uh, a year or more compiling thousands of words for love or any definitions that contain the word love. I mean, that was my only way to do it. I I don't have a formal training in Sanskrit. I've used it over the years for spiritual work, but uh, just editing down and editing down and, and really getting to the meat of these words and then wasn't sure what I would do with it, but really, to me, the impact is actually just seeing the words, seeing the script in Sanskrit, reading them aloud, um, even just opening the book to a, a random page, using it almost for divination, just to see what pops up. But with so many words, uh, or with so many meanings, it, it depends on context. Like I can say, I love the Dodgers. So it's like there's a pool in which all these words are swimming. And if you don't know how to swim before you enter the pool, you you drown. The interesting thing about Sanskrit is words can be created for creative use. So some of these words were created for one work of art or or poetry. Um, Not all of them. Like I love the Dodgers. Like you love the Dodgers. (laughs) 
That's a new word that could go in the dictionary of Dodger love. Um, maybe I should give you some examples. Please, I was going to ask you okay. yes. I would love to. It'll give you a little better idea. So there's a word avascana, and it means attacked by love. I know that feeling. Do you know that feeling? Yeah, I think we do. There's. What's your favorite word? Ranga. Ranga means a battlefield, a dancing place, and love. All at once? Yeah. Once again? Ranga. And it's a battlefield. A dancing place. Dancing place. And love. How did they get that all into Ranga? <laughs> Sanskrit has something, it, it has over a hundred thousand words and because I think of the nature of the artistic use of the words that it can be applied for a poetic purpose and and, and also the fact that each sound they're they're not it's well, not an alphabet it's a sound based language so each sound has its own meaning as well uh, as they're combined so it's like the Inuit. maybe I don't know that much about the Inuit language. I'm not sure about that myself yeah um, so who did the translation obviously uh, translation is paramount Absolutely, and I spent a lot of time doing the translation myself, which I sometimes did take creative license with, but I had uh, two editors who were both Sanskrit scholars mm. that edited the entire book for uh, to, be, to make sure that I wasn't off so on any of those. So an example of your poetic license then. Okay, let's see here. Ah, okay. Naika, which means woman wise in love and life's pleasures, embodying Shakti, energy, without which even Lord Shiva would not be able to open his eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see why that, that's, uh, that's quite a packed word. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm adding some new words to the second edition, so uh, those... I wouldn't say it's so much poetic license as much as research combined with, uh, I, would, I would say creative research. I'm not, I'm not making anything up that isn't there, but I'm pulling together sources mm -hmm. and cross-referencing um, ideas and, and other works that these words have appeared in that are not in the dictionary, but I, I have sources on all of them. So this sounds like quite a bit of work. How long did it take you to compile all of this? I would say two years, around two years, yeah. Um, and it's a work in progress. I continue. I for the second edition, I'm adding more to the definitions. I'm adding some new words. I did take some words out that are I I already there, some of the words might seem a bit redundant, so I took some of those oh. out. So will there be more or less words in the second edition? I'm keeping it at 267. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Adding it to, okay. Yeah, exactly. Is there any special reason that there's it's 267? Well, or I, is there I a have a friend who's an alchemist who told me that the numbers add up to the numerology number for love. Ah, so I wanted to keep it okay. at 267. Yeah. Did you know that before you ended up at 267? I did not know that. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of interesting synchronicities around this book, so I, I'm just following it down its path and 
yeah, in service of whatever needs to come through. Very cool. And yeah. So when you f- were looking at what other languages had, like, there's none that have this volume. No. There, there was another um, language you mentioned. What was it? I think it's Greek. I think five. Oh, five. Yeah. Five. Wow. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested. I, I haven't yet to be contacted by anybody with another language with more words. I think there's quite a lot in Farsi. But I'm not. I'm not sure of that. But the book's not really a study in, in linguistics by any means. Um, I, I mean, I see this more as a almost as a as a visual work that um, people can who really have no knowledge of Sanskrit or, or necessarily an, an interest in it, but are interested in expanding their heart or interested in having conversations about love. I mean, essentially, all, all I wanted to do with this book was to be able to talk to people about love and what it is and try and figure it out a little bit, a little bit more, maybe get somewhere and feel more connected. Well, it's a beautiful little book, and uh, congratulations. You can get it at agegeiger.com and, of course, in the store in Chinatown. Um, where else can we find it? You can also get it at New High Mart on Vermont Street in Los Feliz and Diesel Books in Brentwood. And you can get it on my website, Elise Poppers, E-L-Y-S-E-P-O-P-P-E-R-S.com. And, uh, Perfect. yeah. Okay, cool. So what's next for you? I'm assuming you're doing installation work or what's up? I have... I have in the past created my own installations. At the moment, I'm uh, creating a performance piece related to suminagashi water marbling. Oh. Um, so it's a process with uh, suminagashi means floating ink in Japanese, and essentially, you place the ink on the water, and through your breath, the ink moves and creates different forms. And so the performance piece that I want to do is to invite someone to come and sit with me and create an energetic portrait through our shared breath. And uh, I'm calling them uh, subjective self-portraits. And so, but, and so when, it, when you stop breathing, then the ink settles and that's the print? I don't, I'm not following. Basically, at the, at the moment that one decides you can pull the print off the surface of the water so you press the paper down just momentarily and pull it right off the water so it captures just a moment of movement oh, you can't you can't wait indefinitely the ink will eventually so sink a tiny thin layer of water no it's a few inches of water in a really? basin mm-hmm. and then the ink goes down just on the tip of a brush so it's a tiny point of contact between the tip of the brush and the water and then because of the surface tension the color will expand on the water and then each color or you can also use a different medium to just give negative space will create these concentric concentric rings and then through the movement of your breath those rings will expand into these sort of otherworldly shapes and Mm -hmm. arrangements and they're very complex. So this this also is an ancient practice. It's a very old, old uh, Japanese practice that was used a lot with uh, with spiritual manuscripts um, in the margins. Mm-hmm. So where does this interest in mysticism and ancient stuff come from? That's 
a good question. Um, I would say it. I I feel like we could use some some wisdom at the moment right now in culture, and so I I've been looking back. Uh, I think most of my life to see what it is that we already know that could help us where we are now. Um, and I've, I've just always been curious about the past and about simplifying. I, I'm very interested in technology, but I'm also interested in kind of going the other direction. <laughs> so, and, and does that have, like, you mentioned your parents were like art, art appraisers, right? And did they run the gamut or did they have a, a particular expertise? It was my mom and her father, actually. So my mom and grandfather. Um, and my grandfather, uh, they, I would say they both ran the gamut. My grandfather did appraisals of shipwrecks oh and God. antiquities. He worked on the Titanic okay, so shipwreck. I'm, all right, I'm starting to get a picture here. He's a character, yeah. Percy he was Adam, a character, say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, my mother does a lot of contemporary appraisal work, but also... French posters from the 19th century huh. and um, really runs the gamut too. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Good, good friends at that used to be appraisers uh, at Sotheby's. Oh, so, yeah. But they were very, very specialized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get to do that at Sotheby's. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, all right. So, um, where do we find new work from you coming out or no? Uh, new work definitely on my website, elisepoppers.com, and Instagram. I have a, an Instagram handle at Lifeform Projects, L I F E F O R M Projects, and I post my work and upcoming events and uh, news there. Um, and also, you can get on my newsletter on my website. Elisepoppers.com. Elisepoppers.com. Perfect. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Really it. it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I had fun too. Thanks. Thanks. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the historic Mayfair Hotel and music and artist management company, Regime 72. Please check us out at aggeiger.com, mayfairla.com, and regime72.com. Thanks for listening.